Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to uh, listen to a little bit of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, We have entered the season of Advent, and so it's that spiritual time of the year where we can do a little bit extra for our blessed Lord. And uh, everyone knows, of course, Lent, we fast and we pray and we give alms um, to provide relief to the poor. Well, we do the same thing during the Advent season. And so I thought, you know, if we're going to increase our prayer, we maybe need a lesson or two on prayer. And so Archbishop Sheen gave a catechism series many years ago that many people listen to even till this day. Uh, It's a 50-part series, and uh, it really covers the faith so beautifully. And I highly recommend that you listen to the Sheen Catechism. And uh, it's available for download um, from my website, bishopsheentoday.com, and uh, many other sites. You'll find it. It's a free download uh, of Sheen's teachings on the faith. And so uh, we'll share his lesson on prayer today uh, to kind of get us ready for Advent. And then we'll share um, kind of a a thought-provoking talk, and it's titled The 30th Parallel. And it was from his television show, in the 1960s. And now the 30th parallel, uh, again, Fulton Sheen will remind us that there's uh, a difference between uh, the way people live above the 30th parallel and below the 30th parallel. And I'm not trying to do a spoiler alert here, but I think he's going to prick our conscience and uh, again, motivate us to be able to help the poor, uh, you know, during this Advent season. And You know, Archbishop Sheen was the head of the Pontifical Mission Society for uh, over 16 years, and he raised millions of dollars to help the poor and the marginalized all over the world, and so uh, he has a heart for the poor, and I know many of us also have that same heart, And um, but the size of our hearts can increase, and Advent is a good opportunity for us to practice our charity. So without further ado, I will present to you Archbishop Sheen's reflection on the topic of prayer and uh, just invite you to just sit back and relax and enjoy. God love you. Peace be to you. Many look on prayer in somewhat the same fashion as an aviator may look on a parachute. He hopes that he will never have to use it. But it may come in handy in case he has to bail out. Prayer as our blessed Lord talked about it and taught it was something quite different. Let us first of all see how prayer was used in his own life. 
There are four great heads under which our blessed Lord spoke of prayer. First of all, his prayers were at the great events of his life. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed before he chose the twelve apostles. He prayed also before Peter made the confession of his divinity. He prayed at the transfiguration. He prayed in Gethsemane. He prayed on the cross. And in addition to these great events of his life, he prayed also in the course of his ministry. He prayed, for example, before the great conflict with the temple authorities. He prayed before giving the apostles the Lord's Prayer. He prayed when the Greeks came to him. And he prayed after feeding the 5,000. In addition to these two special headings of prayer, he also prayed at his miracles. He prayed, for example, when he healed the multitudes, when he fed the 5,000, when he healed the deaf-mute, and when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Then in a fourth category, there were prayers that he said for others. He prayed for the eleven. He prayed for the whole church. He prayed for those who nailed him to the cross. And in a very special way, he prayed for Peter. Now taking out all that he said about prayer, what is prayer? Well, the best definition of prayer is that it is a lifting of the mind and the heart to God. To make it more simple, prayer is a dialogue. Man breaks silence in two ways. A dialogue with his fellow man and a dialogue with God. My dialogue with a fellow man is a proof that he is a person and so am I. The same is implied in a dialogue with God. And both of these dialogues are fulfilled in the two commandments. Love God and love neighbor. Turn over the pages of sacred scripture. What do you find? You find a record of men to whom God has spoken. And you'll also find a record of men who listened to him. In other words, scripture is fulfilled in concrete living dialogues. Now, men do not always want that dialogue with God. Sometimes they seek it. Other times they flee from it. One time they desire it. At another time they fear it. Adam was afraid when God called him in the garden. 
Cain was afraid when God spoke to him. Moses was afraid before the burning bush. When you and I have a dialogue with God, what makes it up? One thing that makes it up is, first of all, a consciousness of our own sin. And the other is the voice of God urging us to confess it, to seek his mercy. One voice crushes, the other delivers life. One of the most beautiful examples of dialogue in Scripture is that between St. Paul and our Lord, the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And everything that St. Paul wrote after that was nothing but a dialogue in which he was thereon engaged. And God's answer always was, My grace is sufficient for thee. Now we said that prayer is the lifting of the heart and mind of God. Notice we said nothing so much about the emotions. Why not? Well, Because prayer really does not have very much to do with sensations or emotions or feelings. It's not a feeling in the stomach, just as it is not a pain in the stomach. It is not a capricious feeling, something that makes us purr on the inside. It has nothing to do with the animal part of us. It is not in the glands. It is in the intellect. It is in the will. It is in the heart. As embracing a love of truth, which belongs to the intellect, and also a resolve and a determination to grow in love, which is one of the acts of the will. We do not therefore pray because we feel like it. Sometimes our prayers are much better when we do not feel like praying. St. Francis de Sales said, An ounce of desolation is of greater worth than a pound of consolation. And very often in prayer, we do not have a deep sense of the presence of God. I say sense, referring it to the biological or emotional part of our lives. Really, we are very much like children that are carried in mother's arms. If we are carried in our Lord's arms, we rarely see his face. But we know it is there. Prayer, then, is an intercourse between the created spirit and the uncreated spirit, which is God. It is a communion, a conversation, an adoration, a penance, a happiness, a work, a rest, and asking, a submission. It has many, many forms some belonging to beginners and others belonging to great saints. For example, there's vocal prayer, what we say with our lips. And there's meditation, which is a kind of a spiritual daydream or reverie. Then there is the higher contemplation of saints, which is an effective union with God. 
In vocal prayer, we go to God on foot. In meditation, we go to God on horseback. And in contemplation, we go to God in a jet. It may be asked, why should we pray? Well, why breathe? We have to take in fresh air and get rid of bad air. We have to take in new power and get rid of our old weaknesses. We pray because we are orchestras and we always need a tune-up. Just as a battery sometimes runs down and needs to be charged, so we have to be renewed in spiritual vigor. Our blessed Lord said, Without me you can do nothing. Oh yes, we can eat and drink and we can sin, but we cannot do anything toward our supernatural merit in heaven without him. We happen to live in a conditional universe, and because we fulfill certain conditions, and certain effects are produced. For example, if you strike a match, it will light. That's the condition. So, too, there are millions and millions of favors hanging from heaven on silken cords. And prayer is the sword that cuts them. Our real strength comes from without, not within. Light is not in the eye. It is in the sun. Sound is not in the ear. It is in something outside of us. The sun uses the eye. Music uses the ear. And God uses us in prayer. When we pray, we get into a new environment of love. It is something like the difference between a child in a nice family and a waif. A waif of the, of the streets has no guarantee of security, for example, food and clothing and shelter, because the child is not in an environment of love, such as the child in a family. When we pray, we put ourselves under God's love. And hence we receive blessings which otherwise we would not receive. Now this is something very much to keep in mind in family life. Those, for example, who are raising children and never put themselves in God's care and providentially trust him are not receiving the blessings of those who know that when God gives a child he will also provide for it. That brings us to some concrete suggestions about prayer. The first is this. In prayer, do not do all the talking. 
If you went into a doctor's office, you would not rattle off the symptoms and then rush out. How did you learn to speak the English language? You learned to speak by listening, did you not? How does a scientist learn the laws of nature? By imposing laws upon nature? No, he sits down passively before nature and says to nature, Now you reveal to me your secrets. So we are not constantly to be yapping in prayer. Sacred scripture says, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. We often change that. And we say, Listen, Lord, thy servant speaketh. Prayer is not a one-way street. It is a boulevard. In prayer, therefore, we must not only speak, we must also listen. God talks to us. And more in meditation than in vocal prayer. A second suggestion. Petition is a very valid form of prayer, but do not make all your prayers prayers of petition. In other words, let not the attitude before God be, give me, give me this, give me that. What would a young man think of a girl who constantly said, give me this mink coat, give me this ring, send me these flowers? Is it not true that when you love You are embarrassed when anyone asks, what do you want? The more you love, in a certain sense, the less you want. Now, this does not mean to say, God forbid, that we must not pray for certain favors from God. We will speak of that later on. Because petition is an essential part of prayer. The point we are making is that it is not all prayer. It is not the perfect prayer. Therefore, think of other forms of prayer besides asking. Thirdly, when you pray, do not think that God is reluctant about giving you favors. You must not think that God acts toward you in somewhat the same way that some people act toward a beggar. If they see a beggar on the other side of the street, Well, they will turn a corner, perhaps, to get rid of him. God is a loving father. As soon as we begin praying, he does not turn a deaf ear to us. Think, therefore, of your relationship to God in somewhat the same way as the relationship of a child to a father. And that is the way our blessed Lord told us to pray. When in the Our Father, which contains seven petitions, he began with Our Father. A fourth suggestion. There are liturgical prayers. There are indulgence prayers. 
they should always be favored. But in your private devotions, you should try to remember that your prayers should be your prayers. Do do not let all of your prayers be like circular letters. When you get a circular letter, do you not sometimes put it in a wastebasket? I do not you pray out of your own heart. Your heart has problems like no one else in the world. It has certain worries and hopes, agonies and fears and weaknesses. And these constitute the content of your prayer. And your prayer will come out of them. You will be a person who is praying. Our blessed Lord said that he called his sheep by name. In other words, we are individual before him. Our blessed Lord turned to the thief and addressed him in the second person singular. Thou, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Let therefore your prayer be personal. Even when you say, Certain indulgenced and liturgical prayers. Hearken to God. Be attentive to him. If you were not attentive to him as a person, how can you expect him to hearken to you? If you look around when someone else is in the room whom you ought to be addressing, Do you feel that you have a claim upon his favors? And so it is with God. Pray out of your heart. And fifth, every now and then, cut out the dead wood of prayer. Over a long period of time, you will fall into certain habits and certain routines. And you become so used to them that they lack fervor. Do not be afraid to say, All right, I'm going to get out of this jungle. I'm going to start all over again. God will not be angry with you. As a matter of fact, such an attitude may freshen your prayers, make you much more personal. Another suggestion. Always let the motive of your prayer be love. St. Augustine once said, Give me a man who is loved, and I will tell him what God is. Whatever lovers say to one another, that you say to God. And think not, therefore, of your relationship to him as being that of a servant to a master, but as a lover to the beloved. And seven, keep all of your prayers fresh by praying out of your heart, by praying out of the inspiration of love. Then your prayers will be something like a fourth century lyric which a husband by the name of Ausonius wrote to his wife. Wife, Let us live as we have lived. 
nor ever lose the little names that were the first night's grace. It takes a great deal of effort in marriage to keep up the freshness of love. Sacrifices have to be sprinkled through a marriage. And so to every now and then when love becomes routine, we freshen it by a sacrifice. No one ever rises to a higher level of love without a death to a lower one. And finally, do not let all of your prayers be like blueprints which you bring to God and then ask him to rubber stamp. Remember that God has an intelligence and a plan of your own life, which is far better than the one you have. Little baby may cry for taffy, but the mother will not give the baby taffy. The boy of six wants a shotgun, but the father will not give the boy of six a shotgun. There are some things that are not good for us. And God's answer to prayer sometimes is no. A little girl once prayed for a thousand dollars for Christmas, and her unbelieving father said to her, On Christmas, well, God didn't answer your prayers, did he? And the little girl said, yes. God said, no. So when you pray to God, say something like this. I mean in petitionary prayer. Dear Lord, there's something I want. I need it badly. I hope I want it for thy glory. I hope it's best for my salvation. You know what it is. Maybe it is not good for me or else you would have given it to me long before this. But just in case you're waiting for me to ask you again, well, I'm asking for it. You will know best what to do. Thanks. And in conclusion, may we suggest two special forms of prayer. One, the rosary, and two, silence and meditation. First of all, the rosary. The rosary is almost like words with music. It combines the physical, moving of the beads through the fingers, the metal, the meditation on the joyful and the sorrowful and the glorious mysteries of our Lord and his Blessed Mother. And finally, something vocal, namely saying our prayers with our lips. There was once a young lady who said to me, I think a, I think a rosary is monotonous, and I don't think God likes for us to say monotonous prayers. I said to her, who's that man with you? She said, that's my fiancé. I said, do you love him? She said, yes. I said, how does he know? Well, she said, I told him. What did you say? I said, I love you. When did you tell him? Last night. Did you ever tell him before? She said, yes. I told him the night before. Well, don't you think he tires of it? Isn't it a bit monotonous? No. 
saying that we love is never monotonous because we say it in a new moment of time and in a new place. And so it is with our rosary. And finally, silence. Take out at least a half an hour a day. Live above yourself. Live within yourself. Have an inward solitude. Fulfill the words of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. And in the language of St. Paul, you will say that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Through prayer, contemplation, you can say, as St. Bernard said, to Pope Eugenius, to his esto ubique, always belong to yourself. And then you will belong to God. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I'm sure that many of you are sitting at home just saying to yourself, Wow, I haven't had a talk like that on prayer in a long time. And uh, Fulton Sheen was so loving in how he just said to us, look to Jesus, look at his example. Uh, he showed us how to pray, he, and he taught us how to pray. I mean, we look at Jesus praying with his apostles. He prayed after the miracles he performed. He He prayed for others, and again... I think of how, you know, we're trying to find our way in this world and and uh, we just need to look to Jesus and how he did it and uh, to imitate him. And I know that um, it's easier said than done sometimes, but still, I think this is what I love about Fulton Sheen. He opens up the scriptures and he shows us this is what Jesus did and this is what Jesus said. I like how he encouraged us to say, you know, prayer is not like just bringing your blueprints for the Lord to rubber stamp. Um, you have to work with him and, um, again, wait on the Lord and know that sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer to prayer is just wait. And so uh, sometimes we have to wait a little longer. But I love his uh, encouragement at the end to carve out some silence uh, in your day. Uh, he said, take at least a half hour of your day. Now, when I heard him say that, I went, half hour? That's, that you're asking a lot. But uh, in all honesty, I think we could do that. I think we could carve out a half hour of silence just to listen to the Lord. I know that uh, when Fulton Sheen would give retreats on the holy hour, he'd say, you know, don't do all the talking. You have to do some listening when you're uh, sitting in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. So uh, carving out silence. And uh, that beautiful uh, scripture that uh, the Lord may increase and I may decrease. So uh, lots there. I think we'll all have to replay this talk a few times uh, to get the full message. All right, it is Advent, as I said earlier, and uh, many of you have been participating in our little Advent pilgrimage. Uh, I've been sharing Archbishop Sheen's writings 
on prayer and uh, put together a book a number of years ago called Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And so uh, many are following along with me uh, this book that we're reading it cover to cover during the season of Advent. So we'd invite you to join us in the reading of the book, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Uh, But you can always find the videos that I've put together on my YouTube channel. It's just Alan Smith, and it's uh, A-L-L-A-N, and of course, S-M-I-T-H. And so if you just Google Alan Smith and the School of Sheen, uh, you'll find me and you'll find the videos. Um, But again, there's nothing like having a good book and uh, following along. So uh, the book, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. All right, uh, I'm going to share with you now Sheen's... um, a reflection from his television series, uh, and it's a talk he gave uh, titled The 30th Parallel. And I know that we're called to give alms to the poor during the season of Advent, and so I think he will bring to our attention, uh, using this 30th parallel, uh, the differences between those who live north of the 30th parallel and those who be- live below the 30th parallel. And uh, again, I think he'll prick our consciences a little bit by the end of this talk. Uh, But we all need that, that's for sure. So (laughs) now I laugh. It's a nervous laugh, but I'm allowed to laugh. But again, I invite you just to sit back and relax now and enjoy the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Sheen as he gives this reflection from his television series. And it's titled The 30th Parallel. Please enjoy. Friends, I'm going to do something very embarrassing to myself to tell you of something that happened to me some time ago. Maybe some of you haven't heard about it. I was giving an address in Cleveland, and I arrived just about lecture time in the Hotel Cleveland. I did not have time for a bite to eat. So I dressed, as I am now, a kind of a holy show. (laughs) And uh, I told the four members of the committee that I had nothing to eat. And would they be good enough to go down to the dining room with me while I got a glass of milk and some graham crackers? So there was a waitress there taking the orders. Someone in the early flirties. She took the orders of the four men and then she looked at me and she says, Well, Cock Robin, what will you have? I don't know how I'm going to tie that up with the 30th parallel. It has nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing. Now I'm getting, this is a serious moment now. I'm going to ask a serious question. Do you believe that our Western civilization is, uh, is decaying? Some think it is. There was a German writer a few years ago by the name of Spengler who wrote a work called The Decline of the West. It was a very learned study in several volumes. 
in which he showed that various civilizations go through seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter. And he holds that our Western civilization is already in its winter, in its decline. The very learned Toynbee, in his 10 volumes of study of history, a little more optimistic, he makes a study of 21 civilizations, showed that many have decayed from the beginning of the world. And there's danger, he said, in our Western civilization of a schism of soul, that we may rot from within. Now, I wonder if that is true. I'm going to present to you another point of view tonight. For this has given me much pause and much thought. I'm going to show that our Western Christian civilization is not on the decline. It need not be, certainly. Over 1900 years ago, here we're going back to its origin, there was a gibbet that was unfurled on the crossroads of the cultures of the world. Over the man that was on that gibbet, there was an inscription. And the inscription was in three languages. Well, the, uh, I see the angel as peccable too. Uh, there are, uh, there were three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The language of the good. The language of the true. And the language of the beautiful. Love was unfurled on that gibbet like a wounded eagle in the name of three cultures, three cities. Jerusalem, Rome, and Athens. Those three languages, those three cultures, though they bore the inscription of death, were also the language and the cultures of life. For this message of love spread throughout the world, in these languages and through them. Each had something to give. What they gave constituted our Western Christian civilization.
What did Jerusalem understood as the Old Testament and then as the New Testament? What did this Hebraic Christian civilization give to the world? It gave to the world the value of a person. No one else ever did that. Why did a person have value? Why, at the very beginning, man was made in the image of God himself. And then furthermore, as the story of the Old Testament unfolded, there was an encounter of a person and a person. Of man and God, God and man. Or that the person of God defined himself in terms of persons. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Three great patriots. And when finally all the promises about this encounter were realized, God became man. And then you add him affirming once more a person. He said, what doth it profit a man if he gain the world? Lose his soul. In other words, a person is worth more than the cosmos itself. And on that day, when his hands and feet were dug with steel, he spoke to a thief and addressed him in the second person singular, this day thou. Shall be with me in paradise. He calls his sheep by name, persons. Sovereign inalienable worth. This became the contribution of this culture, this city, this background. Rome. What did that give? When love on the cross was born, it was a Roman emperor that sent out an order that everyone in the world was to be enrolled. Everyone in the world. Why? Well, Rome was the master of this whole civilization. There was only one official language. It was Latin. There was only one capital of the world, it was Rome. There was only one emperor, it was Caesar. And so Caesar Augustus, master bookkeeper of the world, Augustus, master bookkeeper of the world, seated at his desk at the Tiber, sends out an order to the world. To what? To humanity. And not the humanity that's barbarian, but the humanity that was ecumenical, was one because it was governed by that which made Rome famous, law. Law, order, justice, equity, 
These would be the bonds, not force, that would pull men together. Athens? What did that give? That gave science. Why did not the Eastern world have science? Why didn't science take its origins in India or China? Because the religions of the rest of the world were pantheistic, that is to say, they mixed up God and the universe. If God is in a bug, you can't step on a bug, you kill God. In order to have science, you have to be able to study nature as nature. Just can't have nature mixed up with theology. And so the Greek scientist, Thales, for example, was concerned about what are the basic elements of the universe. He found them to be four, air, earth, fire, water. Pythagoras was the great mathematician. Archimedes was interested in mechanics, machinery. But science was possible because nature could be studied without myths. Christian civilization baptized all of these. And through the modern world, and in the course of history, what do you have? And this is a proof now that Western Christian civilization is not dying. You have throughout the world the growth today of democracy. Witness, for example, social justice, racial equality, formation of many nations in Africa, the embarrassment of communistic nations that they are not respecting the value of a person. All of the democratic movements of the world have flown from the value of a person that had its origin and its font at the very beginning of the Hebraic tradition. Why do we have, for example, today an attempt to build peace through the unity of nations, through dialogue, through discussion, through the UN? Why do we have, for example, one world trying to assemble all of the peace-loving peoples together? And simply because this idea of humanity has been baptized and we're recognizing the fact that men form themselves in society and are governed by law. This is not dying, it's very much alive. And science. They were studying nature crudely, yes, but what has that science become? That science has become technology. Where is the technology, for example, of the world today? It's here in our Western world. As Alfred North Whitehead of Harvard said, it was only in the Western world that science could ever have developed thanks to the discipline and order of thought during the Middle Ages. Jasper says the same thing. So that what is the world today drawing on? 
for a future hope of peace. It's drawing on the democracy, on one world, and on technology, and all of these have flown in some way from this great tradition of the three cultures that crucified love on a cross and then finally carried out the message to the world. I do not agree with Spengler. Western civilization is not dying. It's very much alive. Simply because we are a part of it. Angel, will you produce the world for me? Bring in the world, Angel, will you? Bring in the world. Marvelous what this angel does for me. See? See, there's the world. He did it. Now, we must not rest on our laurels in Western Christian civilization. We have a terrible burden thrust upon us. And what is that burden? That burden is the realization that we have a debt to the rest of the world. There's a division in the world today which is unhealthy. I suppose the best way to show this dividing line is to take the 30th parallel. This is it. And that's why we call this the 30th parallel. You run your finger over the 30th parallel, raising it slightly above China. And what do you have? You have the wealth. You have the science. You have the hospitalization. You have the education above the 30th parallel. And for the most part, you have want, hunger, thirst, and indigence below the 30th parallel. Maybe this is why some are saying that Western civilization is on the decline, because they see this neglect. And the neglect falls principally upon us in the United States. For example, we in the United States are 6% of the population of the earth, only 6 but we have 46% of the world's wealth. That's not fair. That's just like taking $100 and giving $9 to six people and then dividing all of the rest among the rest of the world, the rest of the hundred. Why, we throw enough garbage into our garbage pails every week to feed China for three days. The Americans spend $150 a year on cigarettes and alcohol, $150 a year. That is $50 more than two-thirds of the world earns in a year. In a year. 
If all of the hungry people below the 30th parallel began a march and could march day and night and march over waters as well as land and begin encircling this whole globe, how many times would they go around the earth? Twenty-five times. And so I say a tremendous burden has been thrown upon our Western civilization. If it is to survive, and it will survive only on condition that it begins to divide and to give and to share with the other peoples of the world. There are, for example, between 10 and 12 million lepers in the rest of the world. Is not that a responsibility upon us? The average spending money of every teenager in the United States is $500 a year. That's $450 more than the earning capacity of two-thirds of the world. Maybe that's what Toynbee meant when he said we are beginning to decay from within. I know the mere pittance that I get to distribute here to the rest of the world doesn't help very much. Well, that's my work. But at any rate, I can see the responsibility and the duty of sharing. And that's why this telecast, incidentally, and every other telecast that you ever hear, on which I appear, goes here, goes to the rest of the world. Everything. We have to make ourselves vulnerable to feel the need that there is in the rest of the world. I visited a leper colony in Baluba a couple of years ago. I brought with me 200 little silver crucifixes about that high. I was going to give one to each leper. First leper that came out to meet me had his arm off the elbow. He held up the stump and around his stump of his left arm was a rosary. And he put out his right hand for the cross. And I looked down on the most foul, noisome, fitted mass and trench of corruption I ever saw in my life. And I held that crucifix. above it, and then I, I dropped it. I dropped it. It was gobbled up in the leprosy. And then, all of a sudden, there were 501 lepers in that camp, and I was the worst of all. For here I had taken this symbol of love, the symbol of identification with all suffering humanity, I taken the symbol of him who had touched these people, and I refused to identify myself with a man who on the inside was a thousand times cleaner than I was. And the terrible thought of what I'd done came over me, and then I, I pressed my hand to his, and so on, 
or shall I say, the other 500 lepers in the camp. This is our vulnerability to the world. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I think you will agree with me that uh, that uh, reflection was very stirring. And, uh, of course, I think all of our consciences have been touched and that we realize that uh, we have so much and it's our duty to share it with others. And so uh, kind of that little word of encouragement by Fulton Sheen. And it was true what he said, that all the money he made from television went to help the poor. And I believe, uh, don't quote me, I think it was $17 million that he made uh, through royalties on the television show. And yet he gave it all to the poor and uh, the work of the propagation of the faith. And how many of us would give our paycheck uh, to the poor like that. So again, uh, Fulton Sheen leads by example. My dear friends, I want to thank you for joining me for this Advent season as we journey together, uh, trying to make our way to heaven. And uh, who better to assist us than the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen? May I invite you to visit our website, uh, bishopsheentoday.com, and there you'll find hundreds of Bishop Sheen's videos, his audio recordings, and a number of his books. And again, we invite you to join us in our Advent retreat as we read the book together, Lord Teach Us to Pray, by Archbishop Sheen. My dear friends, look forward to uh, seeing you again next week. And until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.